Well, that song is, I think, both hopeful but also haunting. It's hopeful because what if we could be a part of a family that was honest and there was authentic communication? But what's haunting about it is this idea it might even take a lifetime. <laughs> and maybe that's been your experience. Your family, there, there might be bright moments but also some challenging moments. We're in a series called Home Alone, and in week one, we looked at how you never have to be alone, that the beauty of Christmas is that God is with us and that you might have a relationship with him that you can sense his presence at all times, knowing he is with you. And then last week, we looked at how he invites us into a new family, a healthy family, a family that operates so different than the ways of the world, a family in which we forgive and bitterness is no more. But today, we're looking at a real practical topic, your actual family. And it could be the people you live with, your parents, your siblings, or maybe it's your extended family, those with whom you see on occasions when you have to. I wonder how many of you, there's, there's been some drama in your family lately. Anyone? Just me? Oh, okay, there we go. We see some, we see some hands. I mean, we were having debates about who to invite to Thanksgiving and who not to invite and, and what topics should we never explore or mention. And, and suddenly on Facebook, you discover things about your cousins and your aunts and uncles. You're shocked. And then you get together and just pretend like you don't know any of it, right? But what if you can actually be part of bringing healing and health and authenticity to your family? We're going to look at the story of Joseph here at the beginning. And, and some of you don't know the story of Joseph. All you know about Joseph is the Broadway play, Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Uh, I don't necessarily recommend it. I don't think you can see Donny Osmond in any, anymore. Although look at those luscious locks he's got there. But the story of Joseph is, a, is an amazing story in the book of Genesis. Let me just give you a quick synopsis. Joseph was one of 12 brothers, and he was his father's favorite. Jacob decided that he loved Joseph more than all the others, and he made that known by giving him a beautiful coat. And Joseph, in his naivete, would tell his brothers all these dreams he had, and in these dreams, his brothers were having to bow down to him. And that did not go well, as you might suspect. Now, when you read stories from the scriptures, you need to know the context and understand that, that what's happening is being described is what actually happened and not necessarily what we should do. You should not have a favorite if you're a parent. And, and part of why he was his favorite was because he was the firstborn son of his favorite wife. Yes, Jacob had more than one wife. And again, this is not God's intention. God works with us where we're at. And you can see in the scriptures that God's desire is that women would be seen and treated equally. Back then, they were seen as property. And Ted Beasley, one of our teaching pastors over the years, has joked and taught that there is a punishment for being married to multiple wives. Do you know what that is? You're being married to multiple wives. See, that's not God's intention. But in the process, you can see the drama that he has a favorite. And this favorite was then 
betrayed. See, his brothers decided they didn't like this, and so they decided to kill him. And then one of the brothers says, no, no, let's not kill him. Let's just sell him off to slavery. And can you imagine being Joseph, overhearing his brothers conspiring? Should we kill him or should we send him off into slavery? They go back and they tell their father that he died, that some wild animal had killed him, and they put blood on this coat. The wounds are deep in this family. Joseph goes off and he ends up in the home of a man named Potiphar and he moves up to the level of the person in charge until Potiphar's wife makes a move on him and he does not reciprocate. And she falsely accuses him of terrible things. And so he's sent to prison. But he continued to have these dreams. And even as he languished in prison, eventually he was brought before Pharaoh himself and was able to interpret this dream. He tells Pharaoh that there will be seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine. And, and if you will store up during those years of plenty, you can actually provide for your people during the years of famine. And so he's moved from out of prison and put in charge of this massive project. The famine comes and his brothers come to Egypt in need of food. He recognized them but they do not recognize him. And then there's this kind of back and forth. He sends them home, but he puts some gold in there and then they come back and he accuses them of stealing and wants his youngest brother to come and, and then he wants his dad to come. There's just all this drama, just a lot of drama. And then there's this beautiful moment where he finally reveals himself. Look what happens in Genesis chapter 45. Brothers afraid for their life then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept and Benjamin embraced him weeping and he kissed all his brothers and wept over them. Afterwards, his brothers talked with him. See, often the story we hear of the rise to power and these miraculous dreams and this kingdom that he oversaw and even the reunion with his father. But what's often missed is this remarkable restoration with his brothers, brothers who betrayed him, who plotted to kill him. And yet he has this faith that says, you know what, what you intended for evil, God has used for good. I don't even harbor bitterness towards you anymore. I wonder, what, what are some of the ways you've suffered because of your family? The broken people hurt people, and hurt people hurt people. And sometimes the people that hurt us the most are the ones we're closest to. Some of us have wounds because of what our parents have said or done. Some of us have wounds because of a brother or sister, an aunt or an uncle. Some of us have been a part of families that had experienced downright evil and toxic things. And I want you to know that in the midst of that, whatever was intended for evil in your life, God can actually bring good from it. That's what makes him so miraculous. He can take even the worst moments and somehow miraculously bring good. And yes, when it comes to our families, there needs to be boundaries. We need to acknowledge the hurt 
There needs to be healing from trauma. Because none of our families look exactly like what we send out for Christmas, do they? But you and I can actually, instead of running or running from our family or ignoring our family or trying to create a pseudo family, we can have a level of trust to know that the God who created us put us in that family for some reason. In fact, there's this beautiful scripture that tells us in Acts 17 that God actually guides our steps and puts us in the exact place on this planet and time in history that gives us the best opportunity to know him. We don't have to run from our family or blame our family. We can actually become a source of hope and healing for our family. Maybe it's because of the brokenness of your family that you found faith. Because you knew if I don't do something, if I don't go a different direction and follow Jesus, then I might become exactly like my family. You know, this weekend, we had a chance to see the Bryant family, my dad's side of the family. And it's a big family. And He's one of four, and then they all have kids who all have kids. And, and we get together, it's, it's loud, it's obnoxious. I mean, and to have so many Bryants all in one room, so many people with the tendency to control others and to be so cheap, it's just a, it's a very intense experience. And we do this Christmas exchange, and, I, and I've discovered it's not how everybody else does it. You know, in most families, you kind of think of someone and you buy a gift and you give it to them. We have a game, a competition in which tears are often shed. <laughs> it's, we call it a white elephant gift exchange, and there's kind of this two different ways. One, you buy a gift up to $30, and, and then even then, you don't just give it to someone. You literally draw a number, and number one picks up a present, and then number two can steal from number one. And if, and if number three likes what number two stole, they can steal it, and it just gets really crazy. And yesterday, I, in, the, in the good round, see, there's a round where it's literally something you spent $30. I ended up getting stolen from about eight times. I was literally just, I ended up sitting by the tree because I knew whatever I'd pick, I was going to get stolen. But in the second round, it's something from your house. Like, you're just repurposing something you don't care for. And for some reason, one of my cousins or two of my cousins who have kids that are eight and 10, there are twins that are eight and a 10-year-old, and there was another eight-year-old in the group playing. And I, and I was a little worried about this because we play by the rules and stealing is encouraged in my family. Treachery is rewarded in my family. And so literally there's this little sweet eight-year-old in my family and she got a gift that I thought looked really great. <laughs> we live in Shady Hollow and there's Christmas lights everywhere. And she had one of those lights like in the lobby that shines up on the wall. We have two of those that went out. So here's a free one. I can get this one right now. But she's eight. But she is a Bryant, right? This is, this is part of what you have to go through to be ready for the world. If you, can be, if you can make it through a Bryant Christmas, you can make it in the real world, right? And so I stole it. And I had no regrets and it goes around, and near the end, she gets a present stolen from her, and so she comes right towards me and steals it back. She's now the rightful owner, and I ended up with books, used books my brother had never even read and just put in a gift bag. But then it got very, very intense. You see, the 10-year-old, she'd drone number one, and number one gets to go back and pick any gift they want that's not frozen. And her twin cousins had a gift she really liked. 
and you could see the tension building. Now they had this sweet little, there's like six girls between 10 and two, and they have this little, they do this little, uh, I don't know what you call it. It, it. They do these like hand things and, you know, claps and cheers, and they scream literally, cousins, cousins, cousins. None of them were thinking about that in that moment. Because my 10-year-old little cousin was, had her eye on those little popsicle makers that her twin cousins had. And everybody kept telling her, you can do it, steal, steal. And the, you could see the twins holding it tighter and tighter. Like, what have we done? What are we doing? What's going on here? This is not like Christmas anymore. And she stole it. And right in that moment, I congratulated her and said, that's what it means to be a Bryant, treachery at Christmas. And then the twins started crying. It got real. <laughs> and then the 10-year-old started crying and wanted to give it back, and they wouldn't take it back. It was just drama. It was the best kind of Bryant Christmas. <laughs> See, here's the thing. You live long enough, you will be hurt by the very people that are supposed to be your home. I tell this silly story. They'll be fine. They'll be stronger because of it. But some of us walking around with a limp because of how we've been treated. And I want you to know, you don't have to be stuck, a victim in your family. That God can do such a work in you that you might experience healing and then bring that, that healing to your family, to everyone younger than you and everyone who came before you. There's this beautiful passage in Isaiah, and we learn from the scriptures that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can see how he interacts with others, even if their context is very different than our own. And there's this beautiful moment here where the people of Israel are longing for God to intervene in their life. And so God guides them through the prophet of Isaiah of how to recenter your life, how to reconnect your life, how to Bring back in tune your heart with God's heart. Listen to what it says in Isaiah 58. Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Then your light will break forth like the dawn and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help and he will say, here am I. See, according to this passage, there are times when we might sense that God is distant and the way to move closer to God is to, to let go of some of those things, to fast from some of those things that might be a distraction. Sometimes fasting is simply just not eating for a certain time. And every time you're hungry, it's a reminder to reconnect with God through prayer. Or other times it might be fasting from the news or from Instagram or from, from anything that might distract you from God. And here what the scriptures tell us is that when we are moving to a place of bringing freedom to others, when we're moving to a place where we're sharing our resources with those in need, when we are there for our family, then God will be with us in those moments. How can we be faithful to this challenge? How can we have both healthy boundaries and still make a difference in our family? 
How can we be more like Jesus among those who have hurt us? I'm going to give you three ways to do that. First, take personal inventory. For those in your family with whom you have healthy relationships, how can you, how can you move it from superficial to more significant or even spiritual? How can you take that relationship to a place where you're encouraging them and empowering them to be even more who God created them to be? For those with whom you have an unhealthy relationship, can you assess the possibility of where you're at and, and where you might be? Can, and you take that relationship and, and take that relationship before the Lord and ask him for wisdom and guidance and how to better serve and even your part in the unhealthiness that you can own. See, in every relationship, they might do something awful, but your response can determine whether or not there's healing. And oftentimes, if you are someone who follows Jesus, you are invited to lay down your life. Again, it doesn't mean putting yourself in a position to continue to be abused. There is a healthy way, an honest and authentic way to make progress with someone, even someone who's hurt you. In every relationship, there are some who are stronger, more able to give, and others who are needing to receive. Listen to what it says in Romans 15. It says this, We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the, in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. Remember when Jesus was being crucified, he looked out on those who were responsible for this suffering and crucifixion and said, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. See, there's some people in your family, that prayer would be a perfect prayer to pray. They have hurt you, but they don't know what they're doing. They're just repeating unhealthy patterns that they learned that have been part of your family for generation to generation. But number two is take charge of decisions. There's an old quote, that's, quote that says, you can give a person knowledge, but you can't make them think. Some people want to remain fools only because the truth requires change. What sort of change does God, is God calling you into when it comes to that relationship with that person? See, some of us have suffered and we've just suffered in silence and maybe the most courageous thing, the actual path towards healing is to actually have a hard conversation and maybe even bring another family member in to help you move things forward. I don't know about you, but any of you, when you go back to your parents' house, do you like revert back to as if you're 16? <laughs> I've been on my own for a long time and I, 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 I know how to help cook. I know how to do the dishes. But when I get to my mom's house, why would I do that? She wants to, right? You kind of revert back into this old person that you used to be. There are familiar patterns that we can't help but slip back into. Dr. Roseanne Kapana Hodge said this, 
The truth is our family behavior patterns often dictate how we navigate through our lives. We learn from our family, mostly our parents, how to parent and manage or how to parent and manage stress. Without our conscious awareness, what we learn in our families influences our thinking patterns as well as how we respond to a variety of stimuli. You know, for years I just assumed because I'm a Bryant, I'm going to be a tightwad. I'm going to struggle with control issues. It's just who I am. It's genetically me. <laughs> but you see, once you decide to follow Jesus, your identity is completely changed. You are no longer destined to become who everyone else in your family has been. You are now a child of the king. You now have the spirit of God within you. You now have the capacity to make different decisions, to live more like Jesus, to be a light to those who are stuck in the darkness. Scriptures tell us what this new way of living is like. It's Ephesians chapter 4. It says, to those who follow Jesus, do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness and rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. See, some of us are stuck in a life, in a family that's defined more by bitterness and rage and brawling and slander and malice. But you can be the one that changes that, that brings light into that. And listen to this beautiful moment. Maybe you're thinking, gosh, I wish that were true. I wish I could see change in my family. You don't understand. They don't listen to me. They don't hardly even talk with me. They, they look down on me. And you feel powerless. Listen to what the scriptures tell us when you feel powerless that we need to remember. For at just the right time, Romans 5, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God proves his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And it doesn't just mean that Jesus loved you so much that he gave his life on the cross, but Jesus loves your family so much that he died for them too. That he wants to bring transformation in you and through you into your family. Maybe you remember that old adage, that old phrase, when you're not sure what to do, well, what would Jesus do? And it's easy to respond to that. Well, I'm not Jesus. <laughs> but you know what? You were called into freedom and the power that rose Jesus from the dead is within you when you say yes to him. He can bring true transformation in you and through you. Well, number three, Create the family or home that you want. It's hard not to think of this as making it about us, but if you followed the progression of what we discovered or discussed, first, you're taking inventory and you're becoming self-aware of your own part in the unhealthiness. And then two, you're taking ownership for making decisions, making decisions more in line with who God is. See, some of us go back home and we start acting and thinking and making decisions just like we did when we lived back home. 
but we need to come back into that environment, bringing the Jesus we follow with us, making decisions differently, being open and honest, even when things aren't the way we want them to be. And in doing so, we can actually be a part of bringing health and change. You can actually create a home that feels more like Jesus, more like what God's family is supposed to feel like. Lobbyists for love, purveyors of his promise, pioneers of peace. Some of you know our story. My wife, Deborah, and I grew up in Texas, and we sensed a real calling to move to the West Coast. And we lived there for 17 years, Seattle and Los Angeles. And I loved it there. And I have to admit, part of what I loved was it felt like we were no longer part of all the drama. When we'd come to town, it was like a happy thing. Everybody would take off work. It was so rare. It was just a special occasion. And frankly, I loved what we were doing there and didn't really want to move back here and didn't even want to consider it until one day my mom and my wife and my daughter and my aunt were all talking about, well, let's pray that God might bring you back here. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like it when people pray things to happen in my life I don't want to happen. I overheard the conversation. I talked with my wife. It was a three-day drive back to Los Angeles, and we were at odds the whole way. And she kept saying, it, it sound, made so much sense to her, well, why won't you just pray about it? And my answer was, I don't need to pray about it. I know we're not supposed to move back to Texas. I like what we're doing. But see, in the back of my mind, even though I'm a pastor, I can be pretty stubborn. I didn't want to pray because I didn't want to hear the answer. And so I reluctantly finally agreed, okay, I'll pray about it. And on the very first day, I'm praying about it. I walk into a gym, a gym I was members of, but they wouldn't know my name. I rarely went. But I walk in and immediately as I'm praying, God, do you want us to move back to Texas? Or can we please, please stay here? I hear this song. Come back to Texas. True story. I have never heard that song played in a public setting in my entire life until that day. And literally, as soon as I heard it, I, I started shaking. That's the guys who sing the Phineas and Ferb theme song. Like, I recognized that voice. And I walk over to the treadmill, and I'm literally shaking like, okay, surely that's a coincidence, God, right? You don't want us to come back to Texas. And then I get on the treadmill, and it's the Little League World Series which I think is ridiculous. Like really just parents of these kids want to watch the highlights of a Little League World Series game. And it happened to be California versus Texas. And so I thought, you know what, God, this is, this is just too much. Just best two out of three. Whoever wins this game, that's where we'll live. And Texas won. I was so disappointed. And I went back and told my wife and she said, you know, that's so interesting you're, you're saying that because I had a dream that we put our house up for sale, but we didn't buy in another part of Los Angeles, but we moved back to Texas. And I thought, okay. And so this begins, right? I would just hear over and over in just the most um, unusual ways. I, I, I read in the scriptures, go back to your countrymen, those stubborn and obstinate people in Ezekiel chapter two. That sounds exactly like Texas. We're the only people that think this is our own country, right? And we're stubborn and obstinate. I'm stubborn and obstinate. And I have to tell you, as we 
began to follow what God had for us. It was in December of 2010, we moved back to Texas. And I remember when we got here, our kids were about nine and 11. And my mom gave us a little shirt with the state of Texas on it. And in the middle, it said home. And I have to tell you that there may have been some reluctance in me and it hasn't always been easy, but stepping back into my extended family has created the opportunity for me to find healing for some of the things I'd been running from and I didn't even know it. It's created some of the opportunity for me to bring healing into my family. I tell you, I left and some of my cousins were children and I came back and they were married with children. It's not like I didn't see them in between, but I've been able to be there for moments when we lost our uncle. One of my cousins lost his father. I was able to be there in the midst of conflict between brothers or sisters. You see, God is bringing healing into my life and bringing healing through my life to everyone a little bit older and everyone who's come after. And I want that for you. That you can bring more of the light that we celebrate at Christmas time. That God has come to be with us. There's no one else coming to rescue us. Only Jesus. He's not just come to rescue you, but to everyone you're related to, even the people who've hurt you. And so I just want to give you a moment to just connect with God. Just allow him to speak to your heart. What are some of the ways he wants you to love your family? Even those that have been hard to love. Just for a moment, just if you feel comfortable, bow your head, even close your eyes, get rid of the distraction. Just talk to God. Maybe your first step is to just connect with him or reconnect with him. Ask him for forgiveness. Ask him to lead and guide you to experience his healing and show you how to bring that healing. Just in this moment, pray to him. around family can be a trigger for us. But God, I also know that it's some of the more difficult people that and in our interactions with them actually makes us more aware of our need for you. That's in the context of family that you can bring a lot of healing even to our hearts. God, would you do that? Would you give us the courage to say, yes, Jesus, I need you to forgive me because I've been trying to do things my own way. I've been living just like the rest of my family. Or maybe it's realizing that some in your family who've been trying to influence you and encourage you, you need to listen more to what they've had to say. Or maybe it's more of being that light to your family. Maybe forgiving maybe having an honest conversation, maybe bringing some things out into the open that have been hidden and not talked about. Whatever it is, 
God, I pray that whatever you put on our hearts, that we would have the courage to act on that. Protect us as we do. Guide us as we do. And I pray, God, that in this new year, you would show each of us our way of reconnecting to you and to community, that we could experience that healing that we so desperately need, that our family needs through us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to 